Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bill Watson. I'm a trade policy analyst here at the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Uh, thank you all for coming to this event about uh, TPP and the pharmaceuticals. Uh, before we get into today's topic, I want to remind everyone here that there is, we are hosting another event uh, on June 30th, uh, two weeks from today, uh, that is a, a multi-panel uh, conference where we're going to talk about uh, the, the TPP uh, in a comprehensive way, looking at all of the different uh, provisions and providing an, an assessment uh, of the agreement in substance and also the, the political issues that have come up uh, that are complicating the TPP's uh, passage. And uh, at the event, we will have a keynote address from uh, US uh, Trade Representative Mike Froman. Uh, and I'm sure that he's going to tell us all why the TPP is great and why Congress should pass it um, as soon as possible. And one of the things that I'm sure Mike Froman will tell us is that intellectual property is one of the most important things that the TPP does, setting IP rules. Uh, the Obama administration has made uh, the setting of rules uh, the the main uh, motivation or selling point for the TPP, that it sets rules that are good for uh, US interests and that promote US values. Um, here is what uh, the US Trade Representative's office has said about the TPP's IP rules. As the world's most innovative economy, strong and effective protection and enforcement of IP rights is critical to driving innovation, creating economic growth, and supporting American jobs. TPP reflects strong rules that will promote exports and protect US creativity while simultaneously promoting the sort of balance that ensures open, innovative, and technologically advanced economies in the Asia-Pacific region. Now, critics of the TPP are also quick to point to the TPP's IP rules uh, as a reason to oppose the agreement. They say the agreement's patent protections are too strong, will make medicines unaffordable for poor people in poor countries that sign up to the TPP. So sometimes it feels like support for trade agreements and support for patent protections uh, go hand in hand, uh, that either you support both or you oppose both. Um, but it gets a little bit more complicated when you look at the specifics of particular provisions. Um, Senate uh, Finance Chair Orrin Hatch is one of the TPP's most important supporters. He fought uh, for uh, Trade Promotion Authority uh, as the leader of the Trade uh, Committee in the Senate. Um, and he is now making a fuss about a provision in the TPP that he thinks is too weak and it is not strong enough. He wants the TPP to require countries to provide 12 years of exclusivity for an important class of medicines known as biologics. But the TPP only provides five years, or maybe eight, depending on who you ask. And Hatch says this is unacceptable. And just yesterday, we heard reports that uh, Hatch uh, had had a, a phone call with President Obama uh, in which they talked about this exclusivity issue. Uh, and uh, they did not reach any kind of agreement. Uh, they may have agreed that they disagree, uh, and they know how much they disagree on it. So it turns out that the success of the entire TPP 
uh, and whether it will pass Congress may hinge on this one provision, and that the vast majority of trade experts, it's a provision that most trade experts don't really understand or know what it is. Right? And it's come to be very important as part of the debate. And this can all be a bit frustrating for those of us who are eager to see protectionist trade barriers brought down through free trade agreements. Um, it, we, we suddenly see that the fate of Japan's agriculture reforms or the US's uh, auto or shoe tariffs are dependent now on a provision that dictates how pharmaceutical regulators deal with patent disputes or testing data. So my question that I keep asking as I see all of this unfold is, is this issue really that important? Why are we spending so much time talking about it? Why does it have so much political weight? And so I think that um, we need to look not only at whether the provision, not only at the politics of the provision, but also to be able to evaluate its substance. If I want to be able to say the TPP is a good agreement and explain why and explain how good it is, I need to be able to explain the patent provisions and understand how they impact that analysis. Um, so what are the right patent provisions in a free trade agreement? Um, how does the TPP stack up against the ideal? And if the provisions are inadequate in some way, how big of a problem is that? What should we do after the TPP? Or if the TPP fails, what should we do instead? I'm hoping that we'll get answers, or at least discussion, of these questions today. Um, and we certainly have the right group of people to do it up here. Um, let me provide uh, a short introduction uh, for all of the speakers. Uh, I'll, I'll do a longer introduction before each one. But let me just, in the order that we're going to hear them today, we'll have um, Joe DeMond, who is Senior Vice President for International Affairs at the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, and Bert, Berju Kilich, Legal and Policy Director of Public Citizens Global Access to Medicines Program, and Walter Park, Professor of Economics at American University. We're going to have uh, the, uh, the speakers talk um, for about 20 minutes each, and then we will have time for questions from the audience uh, until 1.30, at which time everyone will be too hungry to care, and we will go have lunch. Um, uh, Joseph DeMond is Senior Vice President of International Affairs at the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, where he's responsible for developing and implementing the Industry Association's program of international advocacy and outreach, including the areas of trade policy and foreign government relations. Prior to taking his position at Bio, he served as President for International Government Relations at Pfizer and Deputy Vice President for International Affairs with the Pharmaceutical Research Manufacturers of America. He also spent 12 years as a trade negotiator at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. He received his master's degree from Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public International Affairs and his undergraduate degree from Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Please welcome Joe DeMond. Thank, thank you and good afternoon, everybody. Um, 20 minutes to talk about biologics and trade policy. This is only in Washington that you get a group this large um, to talk about this uh, issue, but it is an important one. First, let me t say a word about BIO, Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Um, we're a trade association based here in Washington. 
We represent um, over a thousand companies, most of them small and medium-sized companies, and most of them who are in the business of, of developing new medicines, the drug development process. And most of them don't even have products on the market yet, um, maybe six or 700 of them. I still have drugs in the development phase. They are part of, we also have uh, large companies that are part of Bio2, but I think it's important to understand about this industry, it's really an ecosystem. Most of the initial research and, um, and initial stages, and by the way, our membership includes uh, universities as well, many of them, um, of, of new drug development uh, gets done uh, by small companies, by universities. Um, and then as they progress, if, if they're lucky enough uh, to uh, be successful in, in uh, moving their products forward through various stages, uh, then sometimes they, they are licensed. And if they want to go global, which typically they do, um, they, they may license their product to a bigger enterprise or, in fact, be acquired by, by a larger enterprise. But whereas uh, 10 or 15 years ago, um, most of the research on new medicines was being done uh, by large pharma companies, um, and the risk was being taken in-house by them. Uh, that's no longer the case. Most of the risk is being taken, and the initial phases of new drug development um, are being borne by, by small and medium-sized companies, most of, most of them here in the US. Um, we have members in other countries, of course, as well. Biggest hubs of biotech development in the US are in Boston, Cambridge specifically, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, Southern California, San Diego. Uh, but there are companies all over the US. Um, the other thing I'll say about bio is, uh, and, and our industry uh, is um, typically we've, we've been very strong supporters of, of global of trade agreements, both bilaterally and globally. Um, this is a global industry. It's based on intellectual property rights. America is the leading in, um, and has a comparative advantage in this sector, um, probably greater, at least, great, at least as much as in any other sector. Um, and um, we, we really rely on those trade agreements to ensure that, uh, that foreign countries um, can't just simply appropriate uh, US intellectual property and, and uh, undermine uh, the jobs um, and then the work that's been done here in the US. So, um, however, we've taken some issue with TPP. And uh, looking at the, uh, the title of the panel about whether TPP has too much or too little or just right amount of IP, I realize um, that you know, we're all reasonable people here. And as reasonable, probably moderately inclined people, we're maybe, maybe we're inclined to um, head towards that middle position. Well, you know, if both sides are complaining about it, it must be. Must, the USTR must have about gotten it right. So it's the unenviable task uh, that I have and uh, my colleague as well to try to convince you that that's not really true, um, that in fact uh, it does err on the side of, of, of weakness uh, in this case for, for a critical US industry. Um, when USTR started this agreement, they said that um, they wanted it to be TPP, that is. They, wanted, they said they wanted it to be a 21st century trade agreement. And of course, that was pretty much left undefined. Um, but we took that to heart um, because biologics is actually a new industry. It's a 21st century industry. And when the TRIPS agreement, and this is very important, when the TRIPS agreement was concluded and agreed upon uh, in the mid-90s, a little over 20 years ago, uh, this was hardly an industry at all. And so this is a, a sort of quintessential new technology that's developed over the last 20 years and which is now a very important U.S. industry. But the TRIPS agreement is, is not really well designed to, um, to address the, the IP issues surrounding this, this industry. And that's what I'm here to explain today. Um, so let me first by, start by talking a little bit about what biologics are. Biologics are, are medicines, uh, they're molecules. Um, 
They are different than uh, traditional molecules or, or drugs that are created, and that tr traditionally drugs were created by chemists, you know, in a laboratory, and that they were, and they were very small, what we call small molecules, very easy to define. A biologic, by contrast, is synthesized in a living cell, um, and uh, they are uh, they're in a living and, and they are orders of magnitude larger uh, than small molecules. Um, they uh, and so here's a picture of actually a very small biologic drug, EPO, um, which maybe people are familiar with, compared to a typical small molecule drug here. Um, and what you can see is, again, thousands and thousands of molecules, very hard to define or distinguish. And this is, this is an early biologic one that's been, basically the IP has expired on it in many, most instances. Now, um, why is that important? Uh, that's important because it has implications for intellectual property rights. And I'll try to, uh, this is where we sort of get wonky um, a little bit. So traditional small molecule, um, on the right side of the screen, the blue side, um, the, the implication for patents is that patents completely cover the molecule. You can define it perfectly, and the patent says, the, the compound patent, it is. there's different types of patents, but the patent basically says, this molecule, we have a patent on this specific molecule. The regulatory implications, by the way, are, is that regulators can easily approve a generic copy on the basis of sameness, or that's the identical molecule. So if you're a generic producer, all you need to show is that you're making that identical molecule. You don't have to go through the clinical trials to show that it works, and that's a, that's a very expensive process to do. So a company cannot copy any of the parts of the small molecule while it's, on, while its patent term exists without being in violation of the patent. And the regulatory requirements are relatively easy. So that affects the, um, the time on a, a market, um, the time on the market prior to generic competition. Um, under TRIPS, there's a 20-year patent term. So basically, every country in the world has adopted a 20-year patent term. Generally, you, you patent your drug at the beginning of the development process. You know, you don't want other people developing that same molecule, and you want to get financing for that development process. So that's the beginning of the 20-year process. Then you go through preclinical. Uh, trials and then clinical trials, which take years and years, and then um, and, and, are, and are quite expensive. And then you get FDA approval. That generally eats up more or less uh, half of your 20-year patent life—eight years, ten years, um, uh, six years—but but close, you know, 10, 12 years. It, it, but let's just say, on average, about a decade or so, um, some, a little bit less probably. So. Um, that means that by the time uh, your patent is approved, and this is under the TRIPS agreement, everybody you know, signed on to this 20 years ago, 21 years ago, that you've got about a decade, 12 years left, um, 14 years um, to, to, uh, before generic competition can begin, to recoup the investment on, that went into developing these drugs. I do want to point out a statistic on this, that um, of, every of all the drugs that go into phase one clinical trials, 90% uh, of them fail. Okay, so this is a very risky business. Of all the drugs that go into preclinical, that's before phase one, 99% uh, of them fail. So you're pretty lucky if you get to the end of this process, uh, if, you, if you have a patent on it. So biologics are different than this, in both, both the patent and regulatory implications. Patent side, um, you cannot completely define this molecule because it was synthesized by a unique living cell and, if, and a particular cell line. If somebody else is using a different cell line, 
living cell line. By definition, the molecules that are synthesized by that are going to be a bit different. That'll be very similar, but they'll be different. And therefore, it, it is possible to basically um, engineer a drug around the patent because the patent doesn't totally cover that compound. It's impossible actually to define. On the other hand, on the regulatory side, um, it's not as easy at these, uh, to uh, get a, they're not really, we wouldn't even call them generic, but a similar copy made because it's not the identical molecule. So the FDA and the EMA in Europe want to make sure that it's close enough to have both the same effect and also to be safe and not have adverse side effects. So if you're a, what they, we call them biosimilars, if you're a biosimilar producer, um, and you're trying to make a similar molecule, A, you may not be violating the patent, but on the other hand, you are going to have to go through some, some additional hoops, some trials to show, clinical trials to show that your drug is as safe and effective as the originator. Um, and um, so our issue is really that the patent protection uh, under uh, TRIPS, uh, the 20-year term, um, does not really... Um, it has some real weaknesses with respect to biologic technology because we can't define the molecule and the, and, the, and, the, and the competitors are by definition not the identical molecule. They're called biosimilars. So what we've been used to and what we need to recoup the investment on that original uh, drug development um, that we've had for small molecules, as I said, for the last 20 years, um, really doesn't exist or really can't be guaranteed uh, uh, and is, is vulnerable uh, under the TRIPS agreement. So my core argument here is, is that contrary to the claims that somehow we're at overreaching and asking for more than we've ever had before uh, with respect to trade agreements, uh, my point is, is from the industry's perspective, all we're trying to do is get a level playing field with respect to the type of IP that we've always counted on and needed um, to uh, to ensure that we have enough incentive to, to develop these medicines. Um, I just wanted to also show, this sort of also summarizes the fact that biosimilars are also a lot more expensive to, 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 to manufacture than generics um, and, and uh, take a little bit longer to develop. Um, but what I really want to focus on, um, spend a minute focusing on, is, is what happened in the U.S. and why this has become, why does this, why does this just come up under TPP, not previous trade agreements? Well, the reason is the Affordable Care Act in 2010. Um, Obama, otherwise known as Obamacare. Um, the Affordable Care Act had provisions that had to do with creating a biosimilar pathway in the U.S. Okay, so before, before, the, before uh, the Affordable Care Act, if you wanted to make a biosimilar, a product to compete with an original biologic product, that product was treated as an entirely new molecule. Okay, in fact, in, in other words, there was no genericizing process in the law, in U.S. law. You had to go through phase, all the clinical trials, all the development process, because indeed, your biosimilar wasn't the same molecule as the one that was originally approved by the FDA. Now, this was considered too inhibiting to, to competition. So what the U.S. did was to say, okay, we're going to allow the, the FDA to um, approve on an on a expedited pathway these biosimilar products. You're not going to have to begin the process as if you were an entirely new biologic product, okay, which was always the case. In other words, the, the protection that you had, the data protection that you had in US law before 2010 was, in, in effect, infinite. No one could use your data to get a similar product approved. You had to produce your own data, which you know, cost tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. 
that inhibits in, in, in competition. So what they did was they reached a compromise. They said, okay, we're going to create a, a pathway to make it easier for biosimilars to compete in the US to get on the market. They're going to need less data They're going to, than, than, than going, starting the process from scratch. However, they're not going to be able to use that uh, to, 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 to um, ensure that there's some protection for the originator. They're not going to be able to use the originator's data to get approval of their product for a period of 12 years, because that was what the industry demonstrated to Congress was that's about what the break-even point is for a new molecule um, in, in terms of what your initial investment was. So that's what this, this summarizes. The base patent term here um, is 20 years, um, and uh, it has long been 20 years. Under the Hatch-Waxman law, which covers small molecules, um, you do get a five-year period of data protection for small molecules, but generally the patent life extends beyond that. Um, for, for biosimilars, under the BPCIA provisions of the um, Affordable Care Act, there's a 12-year provision, which in the U.S. typically even probably would end around or maybe slightly before the end of the data protection period. The point, though, is that in a lot of other countries, you don't have an FDA. Okay, we have a very rigorous regulatory agency in the U.S. Uh, countries in T not all the countries in TPP do, so um, it's much easier for them to uh, approve a biosimilar if they'd like to without going through this rigorous process, um, and as I said before, without very much patent, um, without without um, being able to avail ourselves of any sort of patent uh, of assured patent protection because it's a different molecule. So this is why it was so important for us. Trade promotion, of, uh, uh, let me just say a final word about um, the Affordable Care Act, these provisions of the Affordable Care Act. Um, the Affordable Care Act was, as everybody knows, a very partisan um, uh, piece of legislation, uh, received no Republican votes, uh, but that's not the point here. Uh, the final bill didn't. These provisions of the Affordable Care Act uh, that were amended the Affordable Care Act were strongly bipartisan. Um, uh, overwhelming majority of members on both committees that had jurisdiction voted in favor of them. Uh, because it was so obviously, and there is so obviously a trade-off here. You want to get biosimilars into the U.S. market, but you, need, you had this trade-off. So it's actually one of the very few provisions of the Affordable Care Act that was passed um, by, by strong, strong bipartisan majorities in both houses of, of Congress. Um, the, um, so what happened subsequent to 2010 is a trade promotion authority is passed. 2012, uh, uh, Trade Promotion Authority says that, um, as it had in the past, that the U.S. in negotiating trade agreements should, see, in the IP area, should seek a standard similar to that to U.S. law. Okay, well, the standard in U.S. law is now 12 years, and that was our, our, our goal to the U.S. And it's not just because it was the U.S. standard, but because the U.S. standard was based on this idea that you needed this period of time uh, to get... Um, and enough um, uh, was the break-even point for, for the investment um, that, that goes into the, um, the molecule, into, the, into that product. So in the end, I think, as, as was alluded to, um, the TPP had a number of uh, 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 IP provisions, um, the data protection for, for the, several of which were on the patent side, um, which, I can, which I can speak at in more detail, but I won't now. Um, but on the, on the data protection side for biologics, um, it does say the 
requires countries to have five years of data protection for biologics plus three years of other measures, whatever that means, it's not defined, of effective protection comparable to a full eight-year data protection period. Um, we, our, our lawyers aren't quite sure what that means. I, I'm not sure, that, and we talked to the administration about it um, and to people on uh, Congress about it. We're not really sure. Let me just say one thing, though, that's really important. So we did get these other provisions that were common to other trade agreements. So why is this one so important to us? The, the thing that I neglected to mention is almost all new drugs in development today are biologics. Okay? All of our big pharma companies are becoming biotech companies. Um, this is where the industry and where the science is leading. So if you read in the newspaper about a new product for cancer immunotherapy, which is a really hot area right now, you know, turning the body's immune system to fight cancer, to fight specifically just cancer cells and not other cells, so that you don't have the side effects of chemotherapy, or neurological diseases, or treatments for things like Alzheimer's, which we still have, don't have a cure for, or very effective treatments for, those are all biologic or biotech processes, all of the new medical science advances. And, it's, and we're, we're actually very fortunate, I think, to be living at this time in history. This is really the golden age where this, they, the, the um, results, uh, the implications of knowing the human genome and knowing now how to uh, engineer drugs uh, to uh, address uh, uh, products that begin at the genetic uh, diseases that, that be, have genetic origins. Um, is really, really beginning to gain steam now. Um, and um, it's really important, I think, well, I think it's important to uh, both this industry, but more importantly to humanity, um, that this research be able to, to continue. And in order to do that, um, what you need to understand, as I said, um, the research is expensive, unfortunately. I mean, we wish, we wish it were a lot cheaper, but it, you know, it's very expensive. It takes, it's very long. I mean, when I say expensive, I mean in the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to develop a new medicine. It's long. It takes typically eight to ten years to develop a new product. And probably most, just as importantly, it's risky. Okay, most of the projects fail, 90%. I mean, a 10% success rate is, I wish, again, I wish we could do better, but that's the success rate as it is now. Most of these projects fail. And so, essentially, what hap what's happening is that, um, you, you know, in order to sustain financing, uh, in recoupment of investment, um, it has an impact on that. Uh, the, the small projects begun by um, small and, and medium-sized biotech companies, by the way, are, are typically financed by uh, venture capital companies. Uh, that's one of the reasons the U.S. leads this industry is because we have such a well-developed venture capital uh, industry, although not exclusively by them. There are other funds that finance new molecules and, and, new, and research as well. So um, I'll, I'll stop there. There's obviously a lot more to say. And um, I, thanks for your time. Thank you, Joe. Um, up next, we will have Burju Kilic, who is the Legal and Policy Director for the Global Access to Medicines Program at Public Citizen. She's an expert on legal, economic, and political issues surrounding intellectual property law and policy, trade, development, and innovation. She provides technical and legal assistance to governments and civil society groups around the world and promotes their participation in international rulemaking. She is the author of the book, Boosting Pharmaceutical Innovation in the Post-Trips Era, 
Real Life Lessons for the Developing World, which illustrates the critical role that intellectual property strategies play within access and innovation. She completed her PhD at Queen Mary University of London as a School of Law Fellow, where she taught international comparative uh, patent law and policy. She holds master's degrees from the University of London and Stockholm University in intellectual property law and law and technology information technology, and a law degree from Ankara University. Please welcome Virgil Killich. Yeah, it's there. Thank you very much. So uh, I don't think uh, publicism needs introduction. If you, if you are familiar with the trade work and you know, uh, probably you know about public citizen. But today, public citizen is celebrating 45th year of protecting health, safety, and democracy. So it's an, it's an uh, important and very special day for my organization. You may not be familiar with uh, my program, Global Access to Medicines program. We are relatively young and small. But uh, we are doing, I think, a great job in terms of uh, fighting monopolies, especially the patent monopolies, and promoting generic competition. So I'm going to talk about the TPP. And I think that I have, like, um, I'm in a really good position to talk about the TPP because I spent my last five years uh, traveling around the TPP countries, going to the runs, talking to negotiators. And, um, and policy advisors, working with the civil society. So um, my talk is a little bit about the history of the provision and, and, and how we see these provisions. Because from our perspective, TPP goes, goes beyond what it's uh, beyond the, the existing protections. And, and we believe that it's already providing a very strong uh, uh, pharmaceutical protections for the pharmaceutical industry. So. Um, just outside, there are some one-pagers uh, about like uh, uh, about our positions on, on on the TPP and why we see that uh, why we see why we think that uh, the TPP endangers access to medicines and especially access to affordable medicines. And there are many reasons why we are concerned, and you can read the leaflets. But today, I'm going to focus on the one on one on one particular provision. Biologic exclusivity provision, which everyone loves to hate. No one is happy with this provision. So let's start, like how we came across to this provision for the first time. I mean, the negotiations of the TPP, uh, they started back in 2010. And the first IP chapter was tabled in February 2011 by the USTR. And at that time, there were no provisions on pharmaceuticals, pharmaceuticals-related patent issues. But in 2011, September 2011, there was a provision, a placeholder provision, applying to biologics. And uh, this uh, chapter, this, pro this text was, uh, was leaked in October uh, 2011, and it created a public outcry because everyone became so concerned about the pharmaceutical provisions in the TPP. And, uh, uh, and especially in the room, because all the countries, at that time they were like eight, uh, all the countries rejected negotiating those provisions, and they said, no, we are not going to open this text. So, and there was a public outcry, and everyone was concerned about the, the TPP and its implications for access to affordable medicines in, in developing countries. So, what happened? And, and what happened was the uh, U.S. was all alone in the room. It was the negotiation dynamic was the U.S. and the rest. And this went until 2013. In August 2013, something 
good happened for the US, and Japan joined the TPP. And after Japan joined the TPP, US has USTR as a new ally because Japan also wanted the, the high standards and the strong protection in the TPP. So, and their, their cooperation um, and finally produced this tax which, uh, which uh, determined the so-called landing zone because the countries were like objecting to negotiate the, the tax. So they came up with this paper, which they called Landing Zone. And that paper, interestingly, included a provision on biologics. And it was very interesting, because I was there, and I remember like it was in Salt Lake City, November 2013. And when US table, of course, we, we didn't have access to the text, but we were talking to the negotiators and with the journalists. And when US tabled the text for the first time, like US and Japan, it was a joint proposal. There were two options like on biologics, eight and 12. Because when Japan joined in 2013, Japan made it clear that we are not going to change any of our laws. That's what the Japanese government told to their stakeholders. And Japan has like eight years re-examination period. It's not data exclusivity. It's not market exclusivity. It's, all, it's for the safety and efficacy of the drugs. So, and Japan said that we are not going to change our law. So this is the maximum we can go, that's eight years. That's why in the first proposal, there was 12 and eight. And it was also interesting because this is like, I couldn't find the blog at that time, uh, USTR posted a blog about this proposal. And this is what they said, like they were like, yeah, you know, we tabled this proposal, but you know, the, the dynamic in the room is different because some countries have zero, some countries have five, and some have eight, and we have 12. So they were like, USTR was somehow preparing the audience that like, you know what, 12 is, is yeah, it's not going to happen. So, and it didn't happen. So. Um, just like uh, some background information, because we say that, and, and uh, there is a, uh, that's something we've been observing. That there is a, there is a confusion out there, and everyone when talks, they talk about this provision, they say data exclusivity provision. But the thing is, the provision in the TPP is not a data exclusivity provision. The provision in the TPP is very interesting because it's it's more like a market exclusivity. What is the difference between market and data exclusivity, and which will become relevant for this like biological exclusivity provision, which everyone hates? So when we talk about data exclusivity, the generic or a biosimilar company cannot piggyback the regulatory data and submit the application. So when we say that the country has five years of data exclusivity, which means that as a gen as generic company has to wait five years to make its application, which in, in practice will be like five years and something, some extra years because the market approval doesn't happen overnight. And then market exclusivity is different because during the market exclusivity term, the generic company can use the data, can refer the data, and make the application. So the, 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 the generic drugs can enter the market as soon as the five years elapsed. So what is the situation in the TPP, TPP countries? I mean, US. US has 12 years, but US doesn't have 12 years data exclusivity. US has like 12 years biological exclusivity, and then after four years, there the filing period starts, and the, 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 the biosimilar companies can, can file their application, and the eight, but the, the FDA cannot like uh, grant the marketing approval until the end of 12 years. 
And Japan, as I said, it's not data exclusivity, it's not market exclusivity, but it works like data exclusivity because it's eight years re-examination. And Canada had eight years as well, and it is interesting because when Canada uh, negotiated the FTA with the Europe, with the European Union, Europeans wanted like um, a longer exclusivity period because in, in, the, in, in Europe, the period is like eight data, to market and plus one. So, and you, um, Europe wanted that protection from Canada, and Canada said no. So when Canada joined the TPP, it was very clear that Canada will not go beyond eight years. And then the rest had like five years, and then there were like countries like Malaysia, Peru, Mexico, which um, offered data exclusivity for small molecules, but not biologics. So this is something, an important detail to keep in mind because it will become relevant. So in 2014, October 2014, there was a new leak. And finally, we got to see the biologics like provision. And as you can see, there were four options there, 0, 5, 8, and 12. And it was making reference to the QQ16 which says, which is like, a, which is not a data exclusivity provision, but it's a market exclusivity provision. So, and then all these discussions uh, continued until the, the last summer. And the last summer, it was very clear that before the Hawaii round, the second Hawaii round, we had been to Hawaii twice last year. So the, uh, before the second Hawaii round in Maui, it became clear that no one was discussing 12 years. It was between five and eight. The eight camp was the US, Japan, and to a certain extent, Canada. Canada was keeping neutral. They weren't pushing for anything else. And then there was a five camp. Australia, New Zealand, Malaysia, Peru, Vietnam, and Brunei. So the six countries. And they were saying that, you know what, we can't offer more than uh, five years because this is, this is as, as Joe uh, mentioned, this is a new field of technology, and the current existing, like the standard, the international standard, is zero years. We start from zero, and we, we are we are going to five. Now, the starting point was not 12 for the countries in the TPP. And what happened? The Hawaii negotiations failed because no one wanted to make a compromise. Everyone was like five years, and and interestingly, this became a political issue here. But it also became a political issue in Australia. The Australian parliamentarians were like making statements and saying that don't come back anything more than five because we're going to kill that agreement. So the Australian negotiators were in, in a really difficult situation. And the others, like because everyone, there was a strong block of the six countries saying that we can't go beyond five. What happened? And after Hawaii round, um, there was this new proposal saying that, like, okay, you keep your five years, but give us some additional three years, and let's call it something else, like post-marketing surveillance. And of course, this is the paper we, we published like last summer. Five plus three still makes eight. Like, and countries were like, yeah, but it, that's eight. You know, it doesn't matter how you call it. Like, it's post-market surveillance, market exclusivity, data exclusivity. It's additional three, and it makes eight. And they said no. So this took us to Atlanta. The Atlanta ministerial started in 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 the last day of uh, September, 
September, no, it was September 20th, yeah. So, and they were planning to finish it in two days, like the, and conclude the agreement by the 1st of October. And while ministers were like talking and discussing, and this was the last remaining issue, and uh, the, the biologics exclusivity provision, there were people outside, there were cancer patients, and protesting against eight years. So no one was talking about 12, it was like five or eight. And, and it was very interesting because when I first started to work on the TPP, no one cared about the IP chapter. But then it became the most important issue in the TPP. So what happened? The negotiations were extended until uh, the, the 5th of October. So in the early hours of the, the, the 5th of October, Australia and the US ministers made the agreement. I mean, they somehow reached the agreement and they agreed to disagree. And they came up with this text, no one understood and no one is happy. And it was like a, they created this ambiguity because they wanted the outcome and Japan was pushing for it because the Japanese uh, minister Amari said that I have a flight today. Either we sign the conclude this agreement here today or I'm leaving. And everyone knew that they had to conclude it there. So they came up with this uh, provision and it's very ambiguous and everyone, no one is happy with that. And then when, when the text leaked uh, the later that week, we called this provision and we said that ambiguity leads to fallacy because we don't know what is this, what this comparable market outcome means. The thing is, it's not very clear. And, and, and when you look back, let's go back to the provision. So the, the, the paragraph P, it says at least five years. And then there is nothing like plus three there. I mean, I, I like, because I had this discussion with many negotiators and the lawyers who are familiar with the text, I always ask them, show me the tree. Where is the tree in that paragraph P? There is no tree. So the, the, what happened was, like, as I told you, the difference between data exclusivity and market exclusivity. All these countries who are, have like five years data exclusivity, they have five years data exclusivity, which means that the generic company has to wait until the end of five years. And then they make their application. But the marketing authority, it doesn't grant the marketing approval overnight. So it takes time for marketing approval, a marketing authority to, to examine the application and approve it. And then most of these countries like Australia, New Zealand, they have universal healthcare systems and the, the, the drug has to be listed. So in, in, in theory, they have five years, but in practice, this goes beyond five. It's six, seven, and when we talk about biologic, biologic, um, biologic drugs, these are like, as Joe mentioned, they are very complicated. And they are complex molecules, so it takes time for countries to examine it. That's why they came up with this solution, because this, this was the status quo in those countries. And um, so, of course, there were like disagreeing interpretations, and the USTR and the administration was saying that, oh, this is eight. And then, you know, as, as, as Bill said, the, the Senator Hatch was like, there is no eight there, that's five. And to, to, yesterday he said that at five plus 43, but it's not even 43. 
So, and then the Australian minister went back to his country and he said, yeah, we are not going to change anything. It's like, it's five years. And interestingly, I was talking to a couple of Australian colleagues and they told me that this became an uh, election issue in Australia. Now, every time we talk about this issue and there is like a frustration from the US side about this provision, it adds up one to two points to Australian prime minister's like uh, polls. So, and then New Zealand was the same and then uh, Chile, Malaysia, everyone was saying it's five because that's what they agreed. Five, we'll keep the status quo, which is five plus something, but we don't know what is that something because it really depends and we have to do the case-by-case case analysis. So uh, I think, yeah, it's five or for some it's eight, but I think we need to remind ourselves where we started. The starting point was trips. You know, and the TRIPS offered zero years protection for biologics. So Froman was right. This is the first ever trade agreement in history to ensure a minimum period of protection to biologics. We can't agree on the minimum protection, minimum period, but at the end of the day, it's the first agreement. It's whether it's five or as they say eight, it is important and it will affect millions of people and millions of people's access to medicine. So I think the pharmaceutical industry, they did really well. And I told Joe this morning when I saw him, he deserves a promotion. <laughs> this was like, a, this was a really great campaign and they managed to get five years protection in a, in a, in a multilateral trade agreement. So that's important. So coming back to our question, to TPP, whether it's too strong, too weak, or just enough, like, so the biologics, the medicines, we always say that medicine shouldn't be a luxury. And unfortunately, biologics are luxury for many people living in developing countries. I've been doing this, this job like for like 10 years now, and, and 10 years ago, HIV AIDS was the death toll in those countries. Now it's, bio, it's cancer, you know? And when you start a cancer treatment in a developing country, the first question your doctor asks you is like, how much you want to invest? Because there's always a better but an expensive treatment. So most, uh, in most of the cases, the government doesn't afford, uh, doesn't, doesn't cover that uh, treatment. So the biologics are luxury for many, many patients living in developing countries. So th this additional exclusivity for biologics drugs in the TPP. TPP. How we see it? Uh, as I said, we fight against the monopolies and we promote competition. And we especially promote generic competition. And it plays, these monopolies place an unnecessary burden on those uh, who, are not, uh, who, are not, who are meant to benefit from, from these medicines, the patients. And Joe may be right, the R&D investments might be high. But they, they have high returns because we are talking about drugs which are like $100,000. Like, so they have high returns from the, the market. And, um, and there, there was this agreement, uh, argument during the TPP negotiations that, uh, yeah, if you offer us a strong IP protection, we'll come to, to your market earlier than we usually do, and you will have access to medicines. But the issue is the size of the country's population and nature of its, its market is the most important factor for companies to enter the market, not the IP protection. And, and another important um, 
issue for us is like these uh, exclusivities are promoted as like an, as an alternative to patent system and patent protection because they can't necessarily rely on patents. But the patent system, it comes with its own check and balances. Like there are all these inbuilt public health safeguards like compulsory licenses where governments can use in term in like in case of, in, in case of like um, in, in case of like in case they had like problems with access to affordable medicines. So they call this agreement as the 21st century trade agreement with 21st century high standards. And then we ask, where are the 21st century public health safeguards? Because we have all these new health challenges. And we don't know how to deal with them. Like Ebola was one example. And now we have the Zika. And the solution in most of the time is the biologics. They are, um, so we need public health safeguards. And the negotiators, unfortunately, didn't think about that. And that's the problem of the TPP, because we have rules. The countries shall protect. But when it comes to safeguards, the countries may protect public health. No, we need better safe public health safeguards. And, and that's one of the, uh, the issues for us. So coming back to the main question, the TPP, is it too strong? Yes, because the, the TPP rules lengthen, strengthen, and broaden the patent and data protections and, and delay the generic competition. And there was a battle between big pharma and generics in the TPP, and Big Pharma won that game. So they assured it. And everyone is concerned with the, the, the implications of the TPP. If you are dealing with public health, you have to be concerned. And as Margaret Chan said, like, if this is an open trade, and this, if this is a free trade, why are we closing access to affordable medicines? It's, this shouldn't be the progress. The progress should be all these innovative medicines, they shouldn't end up only on the shelves of the pharmacy. We need to get them into the hands of the patients. Because at the end of the day, innovation without affordability doesn't lead to access to medicines. And cures without access are not secured at all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Virtue. Uh, our third speaker is uh, Walter Park. He's a professor of economics at the American University in Washington, DC. His primary field of research is international intellectual property rights and technological change. He has developed indexes of the strength of intellectual property regimes around the world and has studied the implications of technology policies on research and development, innovation, productivity growth, and international technology transfer. He's been a visiting scholar at the Bureau of Economic Analysis, U.S. Department of Commerce, and the European Patent Office, and a consultant to the World Bank and Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. He earned his PhD at Yale University, Master of Philosophy at Oxford, and BA at the University of Toronto. Please welcome Walter Park. Okay, well, thank you very much for the invitation to participate. Um, so you've heard arguments that uh, TPP may be too strong, too weak. So by default, I'll take the position that it's just right. Okay. Well, um, as an economist, one of our jobs is to try to predict. And I think it's very difficult to predict uh, what are the impacts of um, TPP. You know, we hear uh, that potentially there'll be new innovations in medicine or that TPP will endanger public health. But there just are no uh, 
impact studies on uh, the 12 countries. So for example, in certain cities, if, uh, if an energy company wants to drill for oil or, or build a dam, they would have to do an environmental assessment, right? But we don't, unfortunately, have these for trade agreements. So we have to do a lot of speculation. And so with that in mind, that's how, that's how I'll design my, my remarks. Okay, so again, to reiterate some background. True, um, in the case of um, this industry, pharmaceuticals and biopharmaceuticals, there's, it's a, these are industries that are heavily reliant on patent protection. That's pretty well known. And, and for the, reason, the following reasons, there's high cost of R&D, high cost of testing, years of R&D. Uh, I, I spoke to some uh, person in the bio, uh, one of the bio researchers last week, and he mentioned that he sits around doing 15 years of R&D, right? So, uh, and also high failure rate, very low uh, drug approval rate. And not, not on, on top of all this, there's high consumer demand, obviously, for treating diseases, illnesses. And so there's, there's uh, these, this industry is a frequent target for counterfeiting, imitation, um, and people are impatient to see generics enter the market, and, and, uh, and also impatient to see um, more medicines and treatments for diseases that haven't yet been, um, or in innovations that haven't yet been developed. The second sort of background is that as we assess the TPP, let's not forget that, you know, as we're trying to stimulate innovation in this sphere. So therefore, the, the world already has lots of institutions uh, to uh, protect IP. We have the TRIPS, we have uh, uh, WIPO, uh, uh, we have already lots of uh, free trade agreements, uh, regional and, and uh, uh, multilateral. So I see the TPP as, in that context, like the question I ask is, you know, what is the value added of the TPP? What are the incremental gains or, or harms? So uh, we've already seen uh, a snapshot of the provisions that are in the TPP relating to IP, so I won't go through them all. But you know, without oversimplifying, I think they boil down to two questions, or two things, two issues. One, uh, we expect higher prices for medicines. Two, we expect delayed entry by generics. Well, actually, I don't have problems with either, because that is the way IP systems are supposed to work. right? Firms don't obtain a patent in order to price at marginal cost. Firms don't obtain a patent so that copies can be uh, widely produced and sold, right? So the, the question is, when you have both one and two, uh, we expect something in return, so in a, uh, a boost to innovation. And we also don't expect to pay a steep price either in terms of jeopardizing uh, public health. But I, I, what I want to do is sort of uh, provide criticisms of both sides. So let's start with uh, this, uh, this concern that there'll be huge price increases. Well, there, there are certain mitigating factors. Number one, even if there's a monopoly, monopolies can't charge an unlimited price. They're still disciplined by the demand, right? If, if, if they charge too high a price, then the quantity demanded would fall to zero. And also, the, the, even if there's a monopoly, they're, they're constrained in their pricing by the availability of substitutes, uh, including um, goods that are already existing. So 
If there's already an existing version of a medicine, uh, the new medicine competes with that. So just because a new iPhone 10 appears on the market, we don't all have to rush out and get it if the price-value ratio is not that high. You might want to just stick with your dial phone, for example. And on top of that, another mitigating factor is that many of these countries, um, there already exists price regulation. So there's a study done on, uh, I hope I pronounced this right, quinolones in, in India. And what happened there was that when, when India in introduced product patents, um, the price of uh, uh, the, the, these family of drugs didn't go up that much. And there, there, were, there was some surprise that the price changed at all because essentially the, 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 the patented product and the domestic copies were near perfect substitutes. But what happened was that um, due to uh, the fact that you know, India is protecting patents, the, the supply of domestic versions were withdrawn, but the for, foreign patent product didn't make up for it. And one of the reasons was is, is that um, the... the foreign multinational corporations didn't have access to uh, a good distribution network, the kind of network that the domestic uh, say imitators had access to. And so one of the takeaway points of this study is that um, the multinational companies didn't have an incentive to invest in a distribution network as long as there's price regulation. Right? So incentives certainly matter. Another mitigating factor on uh, price increases is that, uh, you know, if, if a multinational co corporation, multinational pharmaceutical company can practice international price discrimination, that, that, would be, that would help. So as we all know, profits are basically the difference between revenue and cost, and revenue is just you know, price times quantity. And again, the first point is that, uh, you know, if the price is too high, the quantity could fall to zero. But in real life, what, what happens is that the firm is selling in n different markets. So under international price discrimination, of the, the firm can follow what we know, what we call a Ramsey pricing rule, where the price is inversely related to how sensitive consumers are to price. So in a, in a market like the U.S., uh, the price will be relatively high. And in a developing country, a low-income country, where because incomes are low, drug expenditures tend to be a larger share of a budget. And on top of that, they don't have insurance plans, so they pay out of pocket. So they're more likely to be sensitive to price, and so therefore, logic would dictate that they pay a lower price for the same good. So, but to make sure that price discrimination works, we, we do have to restrict or limit parallel trade. Right? You can't just take. I mean, if you're in Malaysia, if you're one of them, if you're in Malaysia, you know, you'd like to get even a cheap, cheaper drug from, say, your partner Vietnam. But what what happens there is that as drugs go from Vietnam to Malaysia, that lowers the price for Malaysian consumers, but then raises the price for the Vietnamese consumers. And so one of the things you can show is that if, you're, if, if you force a firm to charge the same price in all markets, then some of the markets won't be served, like QN and QJ could equal to zero. Okay, and yet another sort of mitigating factor, I mean, to many of us, the... Um, HIV-AIDS crisis in Africa in the late 90s and early 2000s is still a vivid, vivid memory for, for many. Uh, but uh, today, I mean, we, we do have uh, uh, provisions, the Doha Declaration in the event of a health crisis. So, um, you know, uh, compulsory licensing can be issued. 
Uh, again, the, that's in theory. Um, we do know in practice that back in, in the late 90s, the response was very, very slow uh, to the uh, crisis in, in Africa. And um, not to mention uh, the revelation of the huge price differential, like the, the uh, ARVs, uh, the treatment cost something like $15,000, but the generic version was just 300, so a huge price differential. Uh, but today, if it's of any comfort, 90% um, or more of essential medicines apparently are off patent, so that could help mitigate. Now, on the uh, impact of uh, um, FTAs on price, unfortunately, there, aren't that, there isn't that much evidence for that. Um, you would think that that's one of the main criticisms. So there, there is one, little, one report done by Oxfam, and what they do is they compare Egypt and Jordan. So Jordan has an FTA with the US, Egypt does not. And so what, what this report does is do a side-by-side -side comparison of drugs in Egypt and Jordan. Any price difference must be attributed to the FTA. But of course, side-by-side -side comparisons like this won't control for every factor. But still, what they do is they find, this is their quotation, that there's an 800% price difference in some case. But when you look at the, the, the actual prices, when you convert to dollars, it's actually in pennies. So if you, if you have a, a pill that's 10 cents, and then in, Jordan, in Egypt and 90 cents in Jordan, that's already an 800% difference. But again, they're, they're pennies. Now, I don't want to make light of this because, I, you know, as you know, that if, if, if in countries where people live on a dollar or two dollars a day, that, that's a big difference. But Jordan is not one of those countries. Jordan is a middle-income country. Okay. So, um, so now let me turn to my second uh, point about the delayed entry by generics. So you heard on, uh, from this panel today things, terms like data exclusivity or data protection. So why all this fancy terminology? Why don't we call it what it is? Uh, namely, a competition postponing mechanism, right? Because that's what essentially uh, that is. And, and the logic behind that is that uh, firms want to recoup their high R&D costs, their test data costs, and they'll fall short of that if either the, 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 the drug or medicine becomes obsolete too soon or if substitutes and generics enter the market too soon. And, and on top of that, um, uh, currently the, the market is, if you look at the prescription drug market, sales of prescription drugs, mostly they're dominated by generics. So in, in the US, the figures, at least 85% of the, the market is dominated by generics. In Canada, about 70%. Uh, in Europe, I believe, somewhere between 20 and 70%. Mexico, 75%. So it's a huge market. And on top of that, another challenge that I, I believe companies face is that in, in, in countries where IP protection is weak, like, like China, for example, generics enter the market before brand name companies. So one way they get around that is they, in China, their companies are allowed to use publicly available data to satisfy testing. So it's, it's often a surprise that they enter the market before a brand name company. So it's kind of in this context that one has to sort of understand why uh, one side wants an uh, extra time to uh, post, sort of postpone competition. Now, uh, 
As another point, let me point out that in, in, sort of in economics, we have this concept of an indifference curve. So let me just briefly point out what, I, what I'm getting at. What I'm getting at is that there's no one way in which to protect the returns of an innovator. Okay? Uh, for example, you could use a combination of the duration of patent protection or exclusivity, as well as scope. So scope refers to how, uh, uh, how broad a patent right is. For example, how, how similar must a competing drug be to not be infringing? Okay, so this used to be a big literature in economics in the 1980s or so, that uh, patent length versus patent width. So the idea is that, of course, firms want to have more of both. They want to have broader patents as well as longer patents. right? But for achieving a certain level of appropriation, there's a trade-off. So you can either have a, a, you can either offer a company a short length, a very broad scope, or you can offer them long length and shorter, a, a narrower scope. So, for purposes of stimulating dynamic innovation, um, a, a longer duration is probably the lesser of two evils, right? Because that permits a narrow scope permits. Uh, more entry and uh, substitutes to be developed. And so my point is that if we, uh, let's say, don't lengthen exclusivity to the right uh, level, then you have to compensate by giving the biotech companies or pharmaceutical companies broader scope. And I'm just arguing that, that it's probably better not to do that. Okay. So now let me talk about that uh, eight to five, 12 years. Uh, as an economist, I don't know what the exact number should be, what, what the exact year should be. I'm not privy to the, the evidence or the materials that industry uses to come up with the 12-year figure. All I could do was just do a little bit of back-of-the-envelope calculations. And, because the, the length of the years needed to make sure that you break even is a function of so many things. The interest rate, the cost of R&D, what is the average profit flow? And so what I found is that if the profit flow to total fixed costs, like R&D and marketing, clinical testing altogether, is about one in 20, like for every $20 that you invest in the drug and you earn $1 until your drug is, every year until the drug is obsolete, then I can see the, the justification for breaking even at 12 years. But, but that 12 years means also that there are some firms for which that's too little, and for others, more than enough. So that median, I assume, that T, that 12 years is some median. But anyway, you're not going to make everybody happy with that. Okay. So, so what happens if, if uh, let's say, uh, our industry doesn't get 12 years? Is, is it the end of the world? No, because let's think of some of the advantages that... Uh, the incumbent pharmaceutical industry enjoys. One of them is brand loyalty, okay? Uh, to this day, uh, a lot of people have some loyalty to not just the brand, but uh, they like the reputation of the firm. And I myself have to admit that I didn't want to get generics. Every time a pharmacist gave me a generic, I said, no, no, it's not what I want. And they kept saying to me, it's the same. But I said, no, no, I, I want the original. So consumers do have this perception. And that is why several studies show that um, the uh, originator firm does not lose market share that quickly and immediately uh, 
uh, there's a period of time during which they can still build on their brand uh, reputation. And then on top of that, we know that um, pharmaceutical companies have other ways in which to uh, achieve appropriation, uh, uh, that begin difference curve I showed you. Right? And um, one of them is mergers and acquisition. In, in Berger's book, uh, she does a nice case study of Teva, Teva Pharmaceuticals, and they use mergers and acquisitions as a way of maintaining market share. And we already heard about new indications, evergreening, all these other techniques. So there are ways around this. And then third, let me point out that um, if it is the case that it's really difficult to demonstrate bioequivalence between uh, the biosimilar similars and the original biologics, and if it's really very costly, isn't complexity itself a natural barrier to entry? And finally, on this particular topic, let me just appeal to the point that, you know, the sooner test data are made available, I think the better society will be. Uh, you know, in the case of patents, we know that in exchange for protection, the, the, the patentee must disclose their knowledge. So patents, the patent system has a teaching function. We, we give them this protection in exchange for their contribution to knowledge. And I believe that test data also contains some important information for everyone. And I think that uh, keeping data proprietary and confidential too long does a disservice to the research community, whether you're a brand name company or a generic. So let me uh, conclude by briefly pointing out that there are some studies uh, that relate to TPP, but as I said in the beginning, there's no specific study yet. So all we can do is look at previous studies that sort of grope around it. Uh, so the first four I mentioned, there's one study that done by myself and my co-authors, where we do find that uh, stronger IP abroad does enhance technological technology transfers, now, especially in this particular sector. The pharmaceutical sector is one sector that always consistently shows uh, a positive response. And then there's a, another study that shows that stronger patent protection encourages new drug launches, and more importantly, in more places, right? So, Currently, drug launches are concentrated in just a few countries, and stronger protection will open that up more. And there's also a study by Koff et al. that points out that there's also an impact on trade. And then the study by Brandstetter and, and, and co-authors confirm that, yes, you know, the more generic competition and entry, that has a uh, crowding out effect, that it sort of reduces some early stage innovations. So, and, and finally, there is a, is a report done by the ITC which um, is dedicated to TPP, but for the US only. And I thought it was a good report for purposes of uh, getting briefed on TPP. But unfortunately, the report is not brief. It's 800 pages or so. So uh, the bottom line is that um, TPP will have positive effects, but they're small. So. Uh, like point, there's a, an increase in 0.15% of GDP in about 15 years. So I think that's really intuitive to me because, as I said earlier, we already have so many other free trade agreements. We have the WTO, we have uh, TRIPS, we have uh, WIPO here in the left and right. So in the end, TPP, we might be, that would be my conclusion, that we might be just underwhelmed. Okay? Neither big crisis here, neither big boost to innovation there. Okay? Thank you. panelists any time to respond to anything that's been said uh, by the other panelists. You don't have to come up to the podium. You can just 
and do it right here. Maybe we should start with Joe. Oh, thanks for the opportunity, and I'll, I'll try not to um, take advantage of it, um, because I think <laughs> you wanted to end by 1.30, and I haven't had anything to eat today. So um, let me make, make a couple points here. Um, maybe I should just start off by, by talking a little bit about access to medicines and um, uh, the fact that um, we take this issue seriously. Um, but as a public policy question, I think the issue, I think the things we want people to keep in mind are this. Um, first of all, this is a time-limited issue, right? I mean, the products that are introduced today and a decade from now will be basically available to all humanity at the lowest cost possible. I mean, there'll be generic competition at some point, okay, some point in the next 10 years on average. So there's a question about what does society do? I mean, you have these IP provisions that get these great products out, but there's a period of about a decade during which not everybody um, has easy access to them. And the issue is who pays? So, you know, our argument would be, and this is not a simple question, because this goes to healthcare systems, that's one part of this. But in general, I think the answer is society needs to pay. Society, you know, has is, is created this system that creates, again, this, we're on, that's caused these tremendous advances in science and that are just beginning. And society wants these products. We need cures for these diseases, for these cancers, for Alzheimer's, for, you know, neurological diseases, you name it. Um, society pays should pay, I mean, as a public policy solution. The problem is that the, uh, the solution being offered on the other side here, which is to suspend IP, is basically saying, you know who pays for this? Industry. The, one, the very group that's actually creating the innovation in the first place, the burden should be placed on them to pay for access to everybody, as opposed to putting some sort of broader burden on society. And to, to, to us, I think that's exactly wrong-headed. What you want to do is preserve the innovation and find ways for society to pay. Because what's often not mentioned, you know, we talk about, um, uh, I think, Burge, you said, you know, governments often don't cover the treatments for medicines in developing countries. Well, that's exactly a part of, that's a big part of the problem. India, where a lot of these generic producers come from, um, spends about 2% of its GDP as a government on health care. All right, now that's a lot less than the U.S. spends on health care. But basically what, we're being, what we interpret being told is, that is a given. If India only wants to spend 2% of its, you know, that's, even though health care is a right, and if India only wants to spend 2% of its GDP on health care, that's a given. Industry, your products are too expensive for the Indian government to afford to be able to grant access to people at that level of, of, of percentage of GDP on health care. And so you should make the products cheaper. So in other words, again, industry should bear the burden of making sure the people who are inventing the medicines should, should be, bear the burden of, of, some, of ensuring that a billion people in India get access to these new medicines because the government doesn't want to do it. Um, it's, and I think it's a question of, well, who's the, who's the responsibility here of, of uh, ensuring that this right of health care, if you grant that, should be given? Um, industry has a part to play, as, 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 as Professor Park pointed out, that the prices are not the same in developing countries. Uh, as they are in, uh, in the United States. Um, they're, they're much less because there wouldn't be a market left um, if, if they were much higher. There wouldn't be anything. Um, uh, the, the other thing I wanted to say about, I, 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 I listened with interest to Burgess' history of the, of the um, uh, uh, TPP negotiations, and, and there was a lot of um, accuracy there. I mean, it was... Uh, but I would just say that and there were a lot of countries that were opposed uh, to some of these provisions. Um, but to me, um, a lot of this was because there was a certain confusion that was being sowed on the part uh, of a lot of people. 
Um, uh, let's take Australia, for instance. Um, Australia, as was noted, uh, has price controls. Uh, they, have, they have a single-payer system. They can, they can buy the products at whatever price they want to buy them at from our industry, or else we don't get access to the Australian market. Australia also has a very stringent regulatory agency, which, in effect, um, does not basically grant a biosimilar until after the US FDA does or after the Europeans do. The USDA won't do it until 12 years, and Europe won't until 10 years. So our argument was, well, Australia, you basically already have this kind of protection. Well, so why should we care? Well, the target of the industry really wasn't Australia. Australia does have strong protection. It was odd that they were fighting this because they already have the right to control prices and they don't introduce these biosimilars, but it became a big political issue because it was all confused in Australia. What's the point then for us? The point is that there are countries that don't have stringent regulatory systems. You know, the professor said, that, well, a barrier to entry is that these drugs are, are complex, they're difficult to reproduce. Yeah, that's true. It's in the U.S., but in India and in China, it's not. They don't have stringent regulatory agencies. In fact, if you produce locally in those countries, you get faster regulatory approval and without these clinical trials to show that the product is as safe or effective. So to me, this has become a commercial issue and that these governments are playing fast and loose with public safety and public health. It's not about so much about access to medicines. Um, the final thing I want to say is to just highlight uh, a study that uh, Professor Park put on, the, on the, uh, his last screen there by Cockburn, Lanjow, and Shankerman, 2016. It's this January's issue of the American Economic Review, okay, peer-reviewed journal, one of the premier journals of economics in the U.S. It's not a survey. It's not a model. It is a comprehensive study of 640 drugs from 78 countries over a 30-year period, 22-year period, excuse me. And what it shows is that in the countries that had the strongest IP protection, controlling for income, controlling for all sorts of, for controlling for healthcare systems, drugs were introduced sooner, new drugs were introduced sooner than in those countries that had weak IP systems. And the reason's obvious. If, if you know, what you need to know about this industry is that the originator creates the market for the new drug. Nobody knows what this new medicine is. Only the originator knows what it is. That company goes in and creates the market for this new medicine. After a few, and, and this is why, this is the way that the innovative and the generic industries are actually symbiotic to each other. Um, the generic industry waits, they, they want to wait actually, for, the, for that market to be created for this new drug. And then they go in, and, went, and now that people know what this drug is and how great it is, they want to compete against it. But the problem is, if you don't have IP in the first place, the originator's not going to launch in your country. The, 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 the generic companies don't send representatives around or don't do the work. Uh, to educate people about the new system, about the new drugs, so the products don't get launched at all, even by the generic companies. And if you want to see this in, in practice, um, by the way, the other thing that was never mentioned is look at South Sub-Saharan Africa, the HIV/AIDS crisis. One thing that wasn't pointed out there is that those countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, the least developed countries of the, of the WTO, have no obligations to have any IP rights under TRIPS. They don't have to have patent protection. They don't have to have data protection. They don't have to have anything, and most of them don't. So has that led to huge access to medicines in sub-Saharan Africa? No, that's, not, that's what the study shows, both because of levels of income, but also because there's a lack of incentive to launch there. So you actually have a real-world laboratory to, to demonstrate, to, to, you know, but, and I'm just making a small point on that. It's not um, comprehensively prove everything, but I'm just saying there, what, there has been a laboratory on this over the last uh, 20 years. Thanks. Um, can I... Can I go ahead and, and skip to, to ask a question? Um, just because just I'd like to, to get us focused 
uh, on the TPP in particular. Um, it sounds to me like the, the market for pharmaceuticals worldwide is, is it's so much more complicated than, than sometimes we like to talk about it as, as patent protection. Um, there, are, there are government pricing controls. There are regulatory barriers to entry. Um, and that the, the result is that I'm very surprised to hear about how maybe certain increased protections through trade agreements don't actually result in higher prices. Uh, and to me, that seems like that defeats the purpose, uh, right? As, as Professor Park was, was saying, right, you, the, the, the purpose is higher prices uh, because that's how you promote innovation. And the idea that you could have promoting innovation without having higher prices, is, that sounds perfect, right? Uh, but that doesn't seem to be possible. Um, how... Where is the disconnect there? To me, that, that just seems like some, some, I'm, I'm getting something wrong. That there are there, there must either be higher prices or there is not increased innovation. How how am I missing that? Uh, maybe both of you can can answer that. But I have to counter Joe first about everything he Please. said. Please. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I mean, I, I was taking notes and I was like, I have to reply this. I have to reply this. I have to. <laughs> so I have some notes. Like. Um, so the thing is, like as I said, like as Global Access to Medicines Program, like Public Citizens Global Access to Medicines Program, we work on the ground. We work with the developing country governments. We work with the patient groups. So and all my experience is are drawn from the from the field, from the ground. So um, first of all, like um, uh, uh, Walter said about said something about the list of essential medicines and said that 90% of those medicines are of patents. Yeah. Because that list doesn't doesn't include any of the cancer drugs, you know. Like it's like mostly like a, a HIV drugs and some basic drugs. But the, as I said, like we all have a problem now, that's cancer. So uh, and we don't say that let's suspend IP. Why would we say that? Because I'm a patent lawyer. Why would you, I want to suspend the IP system? So the thing is, what we are saying is like we have we have an IP system in place. We have trips agreement. We have all these FTAs, and then as I as we didn't really talk about the, the provisions in the TPP, but all these provisions, they, they, they strengthen and broaden patent protection. We already have an existing patent protection, patent system, and this is an additional protection. This is an additional excuse, exclusivity. So we are discussing, uh, discussing about this additional protection. And... Uh, India is a very special example, and India is not part of the TPP, but India always like uh, is always makes the the headings every time we talk about the the, uh, the pharmaceuticals access to medicines because India is the pharmacy of um, of developing world. That's how we call India. And but the but the the issue with the biologics is as 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 um, Walter highlighted, you know, when we talk about biosimilar, we don't really talk about the simple technology. Like in India, like there, yeah, there are lots of generic companies, and they can they can produce generic medicines, but they can't necessarily produce biosimilars. So it takes like it takes longer for for uh, generic companies to build capacity. And, and knowledge in those technologies, and they are they are learning, and they might be able to to produce it, maybe in ten years, maybe in twenty years, because this is a very complex technology, and we don't have enough scientists 
back in those countries who can who can work on this issue. So um, and 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 there is an interesting thing about India because India has always been criticized for low IP standards, low IP enforcement because it's, it has a TRIPS compliant regime and there is no US and India FTA so that India ha doesn't need to, to provide data exclusivity or patent linkage. But India, India uh, standards are, are TRIPS compliant. It's, the, people always criticize India for, for like lack of enforcement, low standards and everything. But the thing is, it's interesting because we did a research last year about this lag time issue and see like, you know, so, you know, industry is always criticizing India. Why? What is the lag time in India? And it's, it's very short, you know. So the industry still sell the drugs in India. Industry still goes to China because it's a huge country. The population is, is huge. So IP might be a factor, but it's not the, the only main, it's not the only factor for country for companies to to introduce the, their drugs in, in, in those markets. And India is one of the first countries. The lag time is very, very short. So I'm not relevant with all this research. But but the issue that I want to high, uh, highlight is like when I was like writing my, my PhD thesis on innovation, I was I, I went through all these uh, economic articles and they were all talking about strong IP. And I was like, so how are they defining strong IP? Because the strong IP for most of these economic studies is TRIPS standards, TRIPS compliance standards. And I think we moved from that standard. Like, so it, it will be interesting to see, like, you know, what are, what, what, to see what, how do they define strong IP rules, like strong pattern rules. Are they t talking about patent linkage? How patent linkage affects the innovation or data exclusivity? No, I think in most of the cases, it's like these are the countries which provide patents for pharmaceuticals and it's strong protection, and you see it promotes innovation. But we moved from that point because we are now discussing the additional additional protections. So, um, and yeah, Sub-Saharan Africa, we still have access to medicines problem in Sub-Saharan Africa, and HIV is still at that toll in Sub-Saharan Africa. But then again, like in uh, 20 years ago, we had countries like South Africa, Brazil, India, they weren't like, least developed countries, but they still had like access to medicines problem. And there were millions millions of people dying in those countries because they can't afford, uh, they can't afford access, access to medicines. So things have changed and those countries had better, put, um, better uh, policies. They take advantage of TRIPS flexibilities. They are really wise about like, uh, about like patent protection and they have like strong generic industries. So the access to medicines is still an issue because we now we have the access to medicines problem for cancer, but things are getting better. So these are the uh, arguments against Joe and innovation problem. Uh, I think that's a very interesting issue because every time we talk about innovation, I'm, I'm, I've been thinking when I when I first started, I, I I I wrote my PhD on innovation and innovation in developing countries, and then when I first started to to work on my uh, PhD dissertation, and I was 
focusing on innovation studies. And when you do innovation study, and Walter can confirm it, like you have to distinguish between invention and innovation, and 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 the patents like protect the, the 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 invention, but it promotes innovation. So the high prices are they the the the, the do they promote innovation? I don't necessarily think that because the thing is like the pharmaceutical companies. This is their business model. You know, they go to the universities or they do the uh, the research, the basic research. They take that invention out and then they 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 uh, invest in innovation and so like uh, and 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 um, Schumpeter, the, the 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 biggest terrorist of the innovation theory has a has a um, has a very good saying i think and I, every time i think about pharmaceutical innovation i i, I think about of uh, that saying saying because it says that monopoly is, is not not a pillow to rest you know if even if you are the monopolist even if you have the the market lead you need to innovate. You need to to come up with new products because that's your business model. So that's the same thing, you know. As pharmaceutical industry, they need to innovate to keep their business model going. And there are many factors. IP might be one of them. And we had that discussion 20 years ago, and now we had the, the best IP environment for them, and they take the, the best advantage of IP system. No other industry is using the IP system. As, as good as the pharmaceutical industry. So I think this, 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 this discussion about like IP and innovation is quite like, uh, quite interesting because you know, it, two people walking in the same direction doesn't necessarily mean that they are related. So they might be related, but high prices or intellectual property is not the, the main factor for innovation. Um. <clears throat> I'll, I'll, um, I can at least respond to that point. Um, I, I think it's really important to understand how this, as I said, uh, how this industry is organized today. Um, we have, uh, and, and we really should meet some of these people, um, tremendously admirable people um, who are either at universities or hospitals who leave them to start, who have a smart idea, they think, uh, to develop a new medicine. That's, that's where the innovation's coming from today. Many of these people's, uh, you know, and, and the first thing they need is capital to, um, to um, initiate their process of research and development. And there are various phases of this. You know, they have, um, uh, if you, that, that the, the venture capital industry has um, names for. Uh, Venture capital industry is financing most of the early stage research and development in this country. And as I said, what they're doing is taking big risks. Um, they're, fought, they're, they're financing uh, hundreds and hundreds of really interesting projects. Um, and the first question that the venture capitalist companies ask uh, in doing their due diligence on to finance uh, a, a new project is whether you have intellectual property for that project, because they're not going to invest in it if you can't at least appropriate some of the returns. Um, obviously, the investment is tied to, and that initiation of that process is tied to the returns that you're going to get from it globally, not just in the U.S., but globally, I, I, you know, because you have to make decisions between the various hundreds of projects uh, that, that are out there. And, and the way that the science is leading us is that there's just a multiplicity of ideas out there today. So, um, of, of course, the returns 
make a difference. Of course, uh, ultimately, that, that, that goes to price. Um, but, but it's different in different markets. So the U.S. has a different price, as we've said, and, and the Professor Park said this, than it is uh, in developing countries. Why haven't the trade agreements uh, led to uh, greater, higher prices um, in, in some of these markets? Indeed, they haven't. Um, in fact, uh, after, after India adopted the TRIPS agreement in 1995, um, its uh, pharmaceutical um, market exploded. Um, it's increased, I think, tripled since then, um, both for the generic and the innovative side, by the way. Uh, people are spending a lot more on medicines there, and there's a lot more access to medicines they had, since they adopted TRIPS. Um, I think that um, there, one of the issues here that's sort of, you don't hear that much about, some of this is about market share. Um, a lot of groups, um, there seems to be a lot of uh, vying over this issue of compulsory licensing as the solution. You know, like, what's compulsory license this, this medicine um, to get the price cheaper? And I, I thought, well, why is, you know, okay, there's a lot of different ways of getting a price of a drug cheaper. You could just put a price control on it. India does. Um, Australia does. A lot of other countries do. So what's so great about compulsory licensing? Oh, it's a question of who's selling the product. Um, the originator is not selling the product if it's compulsory licensed to somebody else. It's, it's the competitor. It's the Indian generic company. That's the difference. That's, and and the, the, you couldn't construct uh, a better commercial strategy for the Indian generic industry and ultimately the Chinese generic industry than to focus on com- compulsory licensing because what it does is take the sales away from the originator company and give them to somebody else. It's about market share. And that goes to revenues as well because you know, revenues are price times quantity. So I think that has something to do with it. It's not just a question of the prices. It's a question of who's selling the product. The prices are going to be low in developing countries um, that, because otherwise there's no, there's no market. And, and the governments don't fully insure people, which, as I said, is another problem. Thanks. Well, I uh, thank you all so much. Um, I, I hate to end an event without asking any questions from the audience. Uh, so if we could... Um, take one question, and then if you don't get picked, please come to lunch and badger the speakers, and they will talk to you. As long as we can eat. Um, So if anyone has a question, please uh, raise your hand, and I will call on you, and then uh, provide your name and affiliation for the camera so that we can hear you. Um, This uh, gentleman up front. Working. Thank you, Jean-François Watin with TSG, so I'm not part citizen of a country of the TPP, but I have a broader question after thanking the panel for a very interesting discussion. But beginning of the discussion, the U.S. is asking for 12 years. Uh, Other countries uh, are against it. Why would other countries agree to the U.S. proposal when in the rest of the negotiations, uh, Ambassador Froman just does not give anything. I mean, you look at the tariff negotiations and it's almost a joke. The only concession that is made is the uh, 25% on uh, Japanese SUVs that will go in 30 years. Uh, it's, it's not even a trade negotiation. It's not a free trade. It's managed trade agreement. So when other countries don't get anything on what they would like to get, why would they agree to the 12-year on the biologics? 
Well, maybe we should ask you as TR. I don't <laughs> <laughs> Let me, can I, well, go ahead. Go ahead, if you have anything. I can't answer. First of all, the U.S. is a very open market, and you know there's a reason we have a huge trade deficit. It's not because we're a closed market, but that's my old USTR talking point from when I used to work there. Um, but why would they give us anything? That, that makes it sound like that, there's a premise here that I don't agree with, which is this is a win-lose proposition. Last week, I was in San Francisco for five days. Um, it was the event. The event, the occasion was the Biotip, our, our Industry Association's annual convention. How many people were there? 16,000 people were there from 76 countries. What do they want to do? What are they doing at the bio convention, including a lot of government officials, hundreds of them? What do they want to do? They want to develop a biotech industry in their country. It's one of the, the premier industries of the 21st century. So why are they fighting? I mean, why, is, why is it against their interest to have the, the incentives in place to develop that industry? They understand this. The issue is, as I said, so I, I, I don't accept the premise that it is a win-lose situation in this case for the industry, because the industries are always coming to us, and I, I go around the world trying to help them develop a biotech industry, um, which is what they want. What they need to do is to figure out how to balance that with their, with, and, I, and I do agree it is a balance, with their healthcare um, priorities. But it can be done. But in, in terms of the USTR giving nothing, that's really interesting, because it seems like no one in the US Congress wants to vote for TPP, because somehow, it's, it's, it's broadly against U.S. interests. If they only knew that there were no concessions that the U.S. made, there would probably be much more support for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't necessarily disagree. <laughs> well, all right. Thank you all so much for coming. Please come to lunch. It's upstairs. <laughs> <laughs>